case you were wondering, the recording is in progress now. How many of you, if I could ask and start off by saying uh, or asking this, how many of you like to do jigsaw puzzles? Can I see hands of those? Better yet, how many of you don't like jigsaw puzzles? Again, okay, I think there's more that don't like to do jigsaw puzzles than do. There's, to me, there's something futile about the jigsaw puzzle. Okay, you, you, you put it together and it feels like a futile endeavor to me. You know why? What, what is the chief, we talk about the, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of a jigsaw puzzle? To what? To put it together? No. To break it up again. <laughs> the best case, you're going to put together a jigsaw puzzle of a thousand pieces only to break it up and put it back in the box in a thousand pieces, literal thousand pieces. Once again, you work so hard and so long on them. And for what? To tear it up. I remember when my kids were younger and they used to like to do puzzles. We'd work on a puzzle and there was something that they would know, work, you know, even if it was a 50 piece puzzle, we put it together and we wouldn't want to take it up, but they wouldn't want to take it apart because look, I did that. That's my work. And so we would have this showcase of puzzles all over the house displaying their, their handiwork. And we didn't want to take them apart because no, I did that. I did that. I, I accomplished that. And I want to I want to uh, leave it out for everyone to see. And, uh, and so the last couple of weeks, I said, I wanted to dive into the Old Testament a little bit. This, this uh, class that we're in right now is the hard sayings of the Bible. And we'd spent a lot of time in the New, New Testament and particularly some of the words that Jesus said. I want to go back into the Old Testament and look at not necessarily even a couple of phrases, but a couple of books, a couple of, of books that are hard to digest. Uh, last week we were in Leviticus, uh, and, and the question that we, we brought up there is, why do we need such a long instruction manual that was written, you know, centuries and centuries ago, and what application does that have for us? And uh, we tried to wrestle with that. Um, uh, why do we need this outdated instruction manual? And there's a good reason for it, and if you missed that, I've got a link to a podcast you can check out, because we record all these and, and, and uh, send them out again for those that... Uh, and the funny thing is, is that we have about as many people listening outside as we do inside. So uh, it, it's a great, uh, uh, great little tool. Grateful for technology. But again, this week, I also want to ask the question of why behind another Old Testament book. And the, and the book that I want to look at is it's curious in nature and in one way particular. Today, I want to consider the curious book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and at least to me, uh, this book has a jigsaw puzzle feel to it. Uh, at the end of the book, you find yourself asking, what's the point of all that? You know, just like the jigsaw puzzle, if you, you've worked so hard to put it together only to tear it up, what's the point of that, right? In fact, many people will ask, why is this book even in the Bible? What you tend to get from, from other books of the Bible is, is a lot of inspiration, right? Uh, there are some tough stories in the Bible, and they, 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 but they tend to end with something positive and hopeful to look forward to. That, that's generally how it goes with a couple of notable uh, exceptions or a few notable ex uh, uh, exceptions. Uh, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah feels like it has a depressing ending. There are several of the, of the prophets that kind of have a, a downer feeling to them. And, uh, and then there's this book, Ecclesiastes, the other books of the Old Testament, and even the New Testament aren't, aren't quite like that. There's always, Paul, for instance, in his letters, always ends with a, with a hopeful uh, note at the end as, as to uh, why you suffer even. There's, there's hope uh, in that. Uh, he wrote the book of Philippians from jail, and that is one of the most positive, uh, impactful books in the New Testament. And then back to the Old Testament, we have, uh, we have, for instance, the story of Joseph. I love uh, the Old Testament story of Joseph in Genesis. Here's a, here's a narrative about a guy who's got a nice coat. He's, uh, he's showing it off to his brothers. And what do his brothers do? His brothers get jealous of him. 
and they, they, uh, they beat him up. <laughs> they beat him up. They, they, they want to kill him, right? They want to kill him. But instead, what do they do? They throw him into a pit. And they say, okay, now what do we do with him? A band of travelers comes by. And they say, okay, instead of killing him, let's sell him off. Okay, let's sell him. And then he heads off to Egypt. And things go from bad to worse there. He ends up in prison for years. For years, he's in jail. And then you get this sense of why, why are you allowing this God? And, and you know that Joseph must have asked that question a time or two throughout his sufferings. Well, to make a long story short, things change for Joseph and he becomes the most powerful man in Egypt, only second, second only to uh, Pharaoh himself. And when we get to the end of that narrative with this sense of, all right, okay, all's well that ends well. What, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The end. But again, things then go south immediately in, in, the, in the book of Exodus. But uh, the book of Genesis ends with a positive note. Hey, that's pretty good. Thank you, God. Thanks for saving us, right? Uh, and again, there's, there's even in, in that narrative, as difficult as the narrative of, of Joseph is, you can find a, a few poignant, poignant verses that maybe you can put on a meme and put it in, on your social media or, or cross-stitch it to a pillow, if, if, uh, if any of you are, are, are doing that sort of thing. Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, that is not so much the case. Uh, find a meme on the internet or a cross-stitch pillow from the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, I'll pay you 10 bucks. No, I won't do that, but uh, I think it's hard to do. My son is immediately looking through his Bible right now <laughs> through the internet. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, by and large, is a very, very negative book. Okay, and, and a book whose primary strength is to highlight negativity. That's, that's, what's, that's what's going on there. Unlike other books of the Bible where you might go and find answers, in the book of Ecclesiastes, you, you don't really find a lot of answers. In fact, okay, so the author of the book calls himself the preacher. But here's the thing. If this guy is a preacher, he's not a very good one. <laughs> Okay, uh, some translations will call him the teacher, and that's probably a better, uh, more accurate reflection of who he is and what he does. He acts in many ways like a, a philosophy professor. Uh, for, I don't know if any of you took philosophy at any point in your, in your schooling, but uh, a teacher, a philosophy teacher, would often employ what we would call the Socratic method, where, where they ask a lot of questions. Okay, and the point is, is not to, to answer a lot of those questions, but to ask them with the hope that you would stumble across the answers yourself. And asking question after question after question, you finally come up with an answer and a conclusion for yourself. So if you were to jump into the book of Ecclesiastes unaware of that, unaware of this sort of method, you might, you might walk away really frustrated. The teacher in this book doesn't give answers. Rather, he asks the questions that push you to the answers, okay? It's been said that there's a sense in which Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of the Bible, ought to be the first book of the Bible. Maybe it should be the first book of the Bible because uh, have you ever found a, a book or a textbook that starts with a discussion question to push you, get the questions that, that sort of make you think and prepare you for the rest of the book? Again, Ecclesiastes is not the place where we find answers. It's in the rest of the Bible where we find the answers that Ecclesiastes brings up in the form of a question, okay? So put yourself in the shoes of a, uh, of a Jew before the time of Christ. Before the story was complete, before you knew how the story ended, the book of Ecclesiastes only makes sense in the light of the ending of the story. But the problem is you don't find the ending of that story until you see its completion in Jesus, okay? All the way in the New Testament. Without that ending, without that ending, 
without the ending of Christ, if you take Christ out of the picture entire, entirely honestly, you won't be able to read the book of Ecclesiastes and come to any other conclusion besides what's the point of all of this? Why are we here? What is the point? What is the point? Why? Why do we come here every week? For what purpose? Why do we make effort to leave things better than we found them? Why would we do that? What for? What's the point of any, any of it? So just for a moment, let's try and imagine what our lives would be without the answers that Christ brings us. Uh, and we'll try and identify with the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes uh, what the answers are. So turn your Bibles if you have them, or you can follow along with me up here. We're going to read the whole first chapter. That's a lot uh, more than we would normally cover. But again, I want to really set up the tone of the book here and, uh, and, and hopefully sets up for some good uh, discussion. This is Ecclesiastes 1 to 18. And, and let's, let's read through it and see how uplifted you feel once, uh, once we finish this first chapter. Okay, let's see how ready we are to go out and tackle the world. Okay, here we go. The words, and sorry, folks online, uh, again, I know that's not very clear. So again, this is Ecclesiastes 1, and we're going to read 1 through 18. Starts out like this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and, it, and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they, are all, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has, already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. All right, who's feeling uplifted? Who wants to make a meme or a cross-stitch pillow for me so that I can display vanity of vanity? I would love to see that, actually. I would love to see it. There are 11 chapters that come after this one, uh, and it all feels pretty similar. Uh, but let me see if I can sum up for you what's at the heart of, of what we're asking. He's simply asking, what, what, gain do you, what, what gain do you have to show for all your toil under the sun? You know, gain is a, a unique word in the Bible. It's used throughout Ecclesiastes 10 times. It's a word that means profit. You know, see, profit is, is, is uh, we can say, permanent value after you've done everything, after you've done all your work and paid all your debts, 
uh, and you've done the whole thing and it's all over, what you what would you have left to show for it? You know, what what's left of permanent value? That's your profit, okay? Or really, what's at the heart of what he's asking? And it's the same question I would ask you. You know, what is your life about? What what is your life really about? What are you really accomplishing? You know, what does your life mean? Why are we here? And now remember, we're, we're asking ourselves this in, in the shoes of a, of a, of a pre, uh, of a Jew that existed before Christ. You know, we don't exactly know how the story ends, but for a modern context, okay, for the 21st century that we're in here, we're in the 21st century, right? Yeah, okay. It's, it's always off, one number. Uh, these questions still apply to anyone. You might find yourself in a conversation with someone who doesn't believe anything from a religious standpoint, nothing. And at the same point in their life, they're, they're going to have to, at some point in their life, they're going to have to wrestle with the very questions that Ecclesiastes brings up. Why am I here? What am I doing here? What, what's life really all about? It's probably one of, most, one of life's most basic questions. I, at, at some point, everyone wrestles with this. Everyone. All right? And there are three basic answers to the question uh, and uh, to this question. And the teacher, both in this chapter and all throughout Ecclesiastes, he responds to all three. I'm going to outline these three basic answers. And again, this is, what's, this is what I love about the Bible. As old as it is, it still has relevance, I mean, perfect relevance for us today. The same questions that were being asked back then are the same ones we're still wrestling with today. And the same answers apply. All right? Uh, we're going to try and, and shoot holes in, in some of the answers that uh, we, we are, some of the questions uh, that might, well, some of the answers that might be generated from what the questions are, are the questions are raised in Ecclesiastes, okay? And, the, and, and also, I got a, a quote uh, or note, subnote or sub uh, footnote, thank you, uh, Tim Keller in identifying these three answers. He's, he's really very good in this philosophical space. He's got many, many strengths, but this is where he excels. If you think about who Tim Keller is, he started the church uh, Redeemer in, in New York City. And when he started it, I, I mean, it's almost like you could think the gospel wasn't there. And, and so the way that he brought it to New York City uh, was really astounding. And it came with this sort of philosophical undergirding that is completely appropriate for, for how we want to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? So the first answer to the question of what am I doing here or, or what is the meaning of life is what uh, Tim Keller would call or what he identified as the humanistic answer, the humanistic answer. And uh, does anyone want to take a stab at that? What might the humanistic answer be to why am I here? Why am I here? Anyone have any... any uh, uh, Response to that, how might the humanist respond to why am I here? While you're thinking what? To increase human flourishing. This is, this is Paul's first week in here, you guys. You have to keep up with Paul. I'm just kidding. Yes, human flourishing. Human flourishing is at the, is at the underlying uh, essence of a humanist answer, okay? Um, uh, to make the world a better place. That's why I'm here. I'm here on earth to make a world a better place. This is a response you might typically hear at a funeral. Oh, they were a wonderful person. They made the world a better place. Certainly their life, certainly their life wasn't meaningless. Our lives are better because this person lived and, and touched our lives. This world is, is, a, is better because of this person. And therefore, this person didn't live or die in vain. And we can all go home after the funeral knowing at least their life wasn't in vain. But the author of Ecclesiastes says, nonsense. In chapter one, verse 11, he says this, listen, there is no remembrance of former things. We don't remember you. 
okay? Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I bet people don't read that at funeral very often, okay? For example, how much, how much do any of you all know or remember of your great-great-grandparents? Not your grandparents, not your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents. I would venture to say maybe one or two of you could say, you know, my great-great-grandfather or grandmother did this thing, and it's because maybe they were written in the history book somewhere, and, and that was passed down to you at some point, but it's not, not something that's well-known, is my, my hunch, unless there's one of you here that can say, yeah, my great-great-great-grandfather <laughs> uh, was, and then, you know, you, you name some historical figure. Uh, but again, most people, these are, these, these aren't just, these are, own, these are our own relatives, our own people, directly in our line. They're of our family. They lived and died, and maybe a hundred years later, I dare say maybe one or, you, one or two of you could name something, something significant they did in their lives. Maybe one or two of you. Could you go back 200 years? Forget about it. You know, we're just talking about a hundred years now. 200 years in the past? Forget it. I, don't, I couldn't tell you the first thing about my relatives from 200 years ago. Not one thing. Not one thing. Not a name. Not a significant event. My mom does listen to these podcasts later on. She's going to say, how dare you? <laughs> you forgot our family. <laughs> Again, 200 years in the span, of, of, in the, in the, in the span of, of time in the course of human history really isn't a lot. It really isn't. Maybe someone will remember you in 200 years, but I feel like even 1,000 years? No, it's, it's all forgotten. Doesn't that feel encouraging? <laughs> The author of Ecclesiastes says, good. I'm glad you feel discouraged by that. Good. I remember when I was on the verge of taking my uh, exit exams in, in graduate school, I was talking with my professor advisor and he said, yes, amongst the faculty, there wasn't any concern that you wouldn't pass your, your exit exams to which I replied begrudgingly over the pressure of, of all the expectations. Yes, yes, I know I'm supposed to pass with flying colors. And he said, oh, no one said anything about flying colors. <laughs> We expect you to pass, you know, that's about it. No one said anything about flying colors. In other words, he was telling me, hey, hey, don't, don't kid yourself. You're not that spectacular, okay? And the kicker was I didn't pass them on the first time around. I had to go back a second time around and, and, uh, and take them again. So, so that's the first stock answer that people might give you. If you ask them, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? They'll tell you to make the world a better place. And the author of Ecclesiastes is telling you, don't, don't kid yourself. You're not that important. You're not that spectacular. In a hundred years, no one will know anything about you. Scott often quotes, I think it's uh, Anne Lamott, and says, in a hundred years, all new people. <laughs> in a hundred years, all new people. See, you don't find quotes from Ecclesiastes in high school yearbooks. You don't find them. They're not there. Okay, so, so that's the humanist reply to why are we here. Try and make the world a better place. Really? You're not that spectacular. What's the meaning of life? The next reply is what Keller calls the hedonistic approach, the hedonistic approach. Probably some of you are more familiar with hedonism than you are humanism. What, what do we mean by hedonistic? I knew it. Someone was gonna say, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Enjoy the moment, enjoy the day. You know, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's how the hedonist answers the question of the meaning of life. He says, uh, if you think about what life means, there are no answers. The hedonist says, all you can do, all you can really hope for when it comes to the meaning of life is simply to enjoy the pleasure of the moment. Enjoy the pleasure of the day. Now, there's different levels to hedonism. It doesn't always mean bad things like eat, drink, and be merry or, or, or those things. I, I think eating and drinking can be very good sometimes, right? Or it could be go out and, and write a poem, you know, go out and, uh, and love your family, go on vacation, enjoy your work, because that's all you can do. 
That's all you can do. Don't look at the big picture. Don't ask what does life mean because we can't answer that. Just enjoy family and work and, and, and the pleasures of life. Just enjoy it. So that's the hedonistic reply. What's wrong with that approach? How, how, how might you or the author of Ecclesiastes object to that approach? Just enjoy the little things. Enjoy all that you have. How does that break down? Can we have a thought? How might that break down? It's a tough one. This is a little bit tougher. Okay. It's fleeting. Anything that we do now, anything that we enjoy now is still fleeting. It still goes away. In a, you still want something else. You still want something more. So even if you're enjoying the moment, is that moment truly going to satisfy you? No, no. The teacher uh, in Ecclesiastes gives a, a hint in verse eight. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What does that mean? What's he saying here? All things are full of weariness. I remember when I was a kid uh, in our house, we had uh, a single TV. Yes, it was color. My kids often ask me, did you have color TV? Well, I'm not that old, okay? But it was the one TV that we had, and sometimes we'd all gather around to watch that one TV. I remember watching uh, the election returns to, uh, it was... Uh, when Ronald Reagan was first elected president uh, uh, um, over Jimmy Carter. I remember watching uh, a Super Bowl on this 13-inch this TV. And you know what? It was great. It was fantastic. What I will also tell you is, again, 13-inch TV. Uh, I watched a lot of football games on that. I watched a lot of Sesame Street on that, that TV. And, and the only thing I can tell you is that back then I thought the, the next best thing would be being in person. But if you can't be in person, you can't beat this. I also remember the first time I purchased my own TV. I bought it from a friend and I was blown away by the fact that no, it wasn't 13 inches. It was 19 inches. Can you imagine having a full 19 inches to watch football games on? What could be better? And, and you know what was great about that 19 inch? It was, it was, it was, it was great. It was a big, nice, big picture. And I thought you can't get better than this until I realized I could afford a 29-inch TV after I got my first adult job. You see where this is going, right? Do you know right now in the room that we have above our uh, garage, I have a 70-inch TV up there, 70. And do you know that the last time that I was in Costco, I nudged my wife and pointed to an 85-inch TV and said, hey, check it out, not too shabby, right? I wonder what it would look like up in the bonus room, right? The point I'm trying to make is if your mindset is, hey, the, the meaning of life, don't ask, just enjoy the pleasures. Just enjoy the moment. It doesn't really work. The teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying that everything, you get tired of everything. You tire of it quickly. You grow weary of everything. If pleasure is the end game, that pleasure goes away awfully fast. It doesn't last long at all. Even, even if you think of something noble, like your spouse, if, you, if you're simply in it for the pleasure of, and, and, and good feelings, it's fleeting. It's fleeting. It's not always good times. Marriage is not always good times, except in my marriage, of course. All right. In, in verses 12 to 16, he's saying in not so few words, I was king over, I was king over Jerusalem. I was king of the land. I devoted myself. I saw it all. I accomplished it all. And I had all the pleasure I wanted. I had all the accomplishment I wanted. And it was, and I was, it was chasing after the wind. I got tired of all of it after a while. Not only, it, it, uh, it, uh, it only brought me so much pleasure. There was a limit to it and I found it every time. I found it every time. John D. Rockefeller uh, famously replied once when asked, how much money is enough? Do you know what he said? 
one more dollar. I've heard it's also uh, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. I remember how thrilled I was to stand in line at the Green Hills Mall for hours on end to buy an iPhone 4. And that phone was awesome until about a year or two later when they came out with the iPhone 5. Then the pleasure was gone. If I pointed to an iPhone 5 now, my son would look at it and laugh, okay? That's how fleeting it is. It's not that old. But if, <laughs> if I told my son, I want you to have this iPhone 5, he would say, that's what he would say. Just like that exact quote unquote. If it's pleasure you seek, it only lasts as long as a breeze of wind. And there's also one more wrinkle to this mindset. You know, uh, the mindset that says, don't think about it. Don't think about the big picture. Just enjoy your life and, and enjoy the, the things before you. The other problem with that, of, of saying, don't think about the big picture. When you tell someone, don't, don't think about something, what do they do? You think about that, 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 you think about that one thing. Uh, I just don't think we're wired that way to not think about the big picture. In Romans 2.15, we're told, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Do you, do you know what that's saying? It, it, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian. This is not just applicable to a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a humanist or a hedonist. This is the way God made you. He's written the law on your heart. This means that, that you can deny all you want, but your heart testifies to the fact that there's something more out there, that there's something more out there than just enjoying the pleasures of the day. It means, it means that you can't last long without eventually asking what? What am I here for? There has to be more than the moment. It has to be about more than the moment. I'm made for something bigger than just enjoying the pleasures of life. Is there more? You, you can't keep yourself from eventually asking that. That's what Romans is telling us here. Eventually, you're going to ask something else because it's written on your heart that there's more to this life than just the moment. So, so that's the hedonist approach. So we have the, the humanist and the hedonist. The third and, and final approach is the existentialist approach. Uh, that's, again, another tough word. And some of you may be thinking, I know I've heard the word, but I'm not sure how it applies to what we're talking about here. Uh, this is the approach that says, you're right, life is meaningless. Life is meaningless, there's no purpose to it, but, but uh, let the world be senseless, I will not be. I'm going to rise above it. The world may be merciless, but I will not be. My life is meaningless, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a humanitarian in the face of it anyway. I'm going to rise above it because I believe that I'm better. I believe I'm, 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 uh, I'm wired to be, to be different, okay? They're the people that say, even though the world will win, I will be noble. I will be compassionate. I'm going to work for justice and, uh, and, and go down into a, to a never-ending defeat. Life is cruel and senseless, but I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to live in spite of the fact that everything is senseless. How noble right? How, how noble? What, what might be the problem with that mindset, though? And again, we started, this is why I say this is such a philosophical book, because again, it pushes you to ask these questions, and where are the answers? All right? What's wrong with saying the world is meaningless, but I'm going to be better than that? Where's the problem there? Where's the hitch? It sounds ungrounded. What, tell us what you mean by ungrounded. What's the... There's, there's no foundational uh, support to, to say, I'm going to be better. Better than what? According to whose standard am I going to be better? You know, I'm going to be better, says who? Says who? 
okay, where do you get this, this standard of justice? If you're gonna say, I'm gonna be just in the face of injustice, who's to define what is just and what is unjust, all right? Where do you get the idea of a straight line by which you can tell me that the universe is crooked? Where do you get that idea? Where does it come from? And how do you know it's right? Where do you get a standard by which to judge the universe when there's nothing but a cruel and senseless world around you? Where does it come from? Who, who put that in you to know the difference? How did it get in you to know the difference? Why are you so special that suddenly you realize that I can rise above it? How do you know? Where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? Who says it's right? At the heart of what they're saying is, no, there is no God. We're accidents. And yes, eventually we're going to be nothing more than food for the earth. In other words, my origin is insignificant, but my destiny is significant. But that's false. That's false. Dean. Yeah. Okay. So Dean is saying here, for those of you online, he says that every existentialist that he's had a conversation with is really, uh, what was the first word you used? Narcissistic. Hedonists. They're like, I am better. Yeah. Yeah. A narcissistic hedonist. That's funny. <laughs> Uh, but again, every human being, this says every human being is valuable. We have to work for human dignity and we have to work for equal rights and justice for all, like according to whose standard, right? Your standard is what you're saying. A narcissistic response, right? According to my standards. And, and people think Christians are naive, you know? Look, look, at, look at the faith it takes to say, if my origin is in insignificance and my destiny is insignificance, uh, have the guts to admit that your own life is insignificant. If, if, if that's really what you're grounded in, that, that everything is insignificant, okay. How is it that you aren't, okay? Either there's life above the sun and there's meaning or there's no life except that which is under the sun and nothing means anything, okay? So if the answer is not humanism and it's not hedonism and it's not existentialism, then what is the answer? And again, it might disappoint you to find out the teacher in this book doesn't give us the answer. He just kind of says, oh, well, good luck. Have a good day, right? It's not within the book of Ecclesiastes we find the answer, but remember, that's not his job. The real answer the teacher really points to is not found in this book. It's, that's not his job. He's the discussion guide for the Bible. It's not his job to give you the answers. It's his job to ask you the question. So where do you find the answers? Um, it's a lot like we discussed last week when we talk about the law and all of its instructions in, in Exodus and Leviticus, much like the law whose purpose it is to get you to the point that you say what? You see all these laws, you see all these requirements, and it brings you to a place that says, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't keep all the requirements of the law. My only hope is, is, is if someone from up there comes down here and helps me do this or does it for me, okay? Um, and, and much like that, this is what Ecclesiastes should do for us too. In a sense, the book of Ecclesiastes beats you down. It beats you down and, and, and it beats you and beats you and it brings you to the place that says, is it? Is life meaningless? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Is there, is there really anything to this life? Is there truly nothing meaningful under the sun? Ecclesiastes brings you to a place that makes you ask, is there anything meaningful to life? And we find the answer. We don't find that the final cadence, that final resolution until we find the person of Jesus Christ. 
And, and here's something interesting. As philosophical as Ecclesiastes is, the first chapter of John, the first chapter of the book of, of, uh, of John, uh, in the book of John, is written in an equally philosophical manner. You see, the Greeks of the day used to get together and ask if we could just find what they would call the logos of life, the meaning of life, the word of life, the logos of life, then things will be fine. The logos meant the reason for life. They argued, what was the reason, the logos for life? And now when we translate uh, the first chapter of John, it starts out like this. Logos, the word word, is the word he's using for life. What is the logos for life? And John does this in, in John 1, uh, 1 to 4. In the beginning was the logos. This is philosophy here. And the Logos was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All thing, things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So John, John is opening his gospel, answering the question that the teacher in Ecclesiastes asks, this is the meaning. This is the reason. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, there is no logos. There is no meaning in life. And then John comes along and says, guess what? There is a logos to life, but it's not a truth brought by a person. That truth is a person. The logos is not an abstract principle. The logos is something that, that you, you, you can, uh, is not something you can find in a book. The logos is a human being. God come to earth. The Logos became flesh and tabernacled. When it says dwelled, it tabernacled among us. So, so here's the bottom line. I'm going to bottom line it for you now. The final message of Ecclesiastes is not that, that nothing really matters, but that everything matters. Everything matters. This is what he's saying. It, it's saying if there is a God, if there is a God, who will one day judge the world, and this is where he ends up at by the end of, of, of Ecclesiastes, then everything matters. Every little thing you do matters. It means that there's nothing you do that is insignificant. Nothing, nothing, if there is a God. Again, Ecclesiastes 12, 14 tells us, for God will bring every, every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, everything, every deed into judgment, including the very secret things, nothing will be excluded. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it will all have eternal significance. E eternal significance is the opposite of fleeting significance. This is the point he's been trying to build on, that absolutely nothing matters unless there's an eternal God in heaven something above the sun that sets it all in motion. Every last living detail in life to accomplish his purposes. Suddenly, then, everything matters. There's nothing insignificant. And I would go back to the story of, of Joseph. And again, you think about everything that transpired in the life of Joseph. He was sold uh, by his, he was originally, you know, thrown into a pit, sold by his brothers, ends up in pit, you know, prison, uh, chased around by, by Potiphar's wife, uh, back into prison, and then comes out of prison, and then, and then uh, he, 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 he finds himself in the court of Pharaoh, and then after the court of Pharaoh, he interprets these dreams, and finally, finally he's, he's, he's the most powerful man in the land, and after he's the most powerful man in the land, he saves his family, and he saves all of the Jews, 
because of a coat, <laughs> because of a colorful coat. How insignificant is that colorful coat? It's not. The whole story hinges upon it because of one little coat, right? So in light of that, let me ask you this. Why do you put together a jigsaw puzzle? Why would you do such a thing? Let me tell you why. Do you know why? Why would you put together a, a jigsaw puzzle? For those of you that like putting together a jigsaw puzzle, why do you do it? It exercises your brain. Satisfaction. What kind of satisfaction? What do you mean? When you look at it, when you're done with it, when you're done exercising your brain, you look at it and you see something and you say, it is good. Who else said that? Who looked back and said, it is good. It is good because you are cast in the image of an eternal creator and you can gain the sense of satisfaction about making something complete by completing something and simply saying, it is good. It is good. We went, my, my family and I we went to the car show the other day, yesterday in, in uh, Franklin. And, uh, and again, I, I've, to I've told you this before and it happened again yesterday where this car, uh, they started up the engine and they just revved it. They just, wow. And I started to tear up. I started to get a, a lump in my throat. Why? Because it is good. <laughs> it was very good. It was very good what I saw. There's satisfaction in, the, in that. Why? Because I'm casting the image of the one who, is, who has done that on a much bigger scale, who has created something much more complex and, and, and took a step back and said, it is good. It is good. That's the reason you enjoy putting together a puzzle. Whether you realize it or not, that's in, the, that's in whose image you were cast. Dean, did you have something before? All right, all right, and that's really what I want to tell you about the book of Ecclesiastes, which takes us right till 10 till, but uh, I want to see if you have any other comments or thoughts or questions, uh, and I want you to go home and read the book of Ecclesiastes now and finish it with satisfaction saying, it's not meaningless, I know, I know, I now know the end of the story, and it gives me significance, it gives me purpose, and it gives every little thing I do significance. Someone else, thoughts, comments? Yes, Rosemary. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wearily? Yeah, let me catch the people online here. This is Rosemarie, and she's talking about the fact that... Uh, uh, when we read the opening chapter of, uh, of Ecclesiastes and talked about nothing new under the sun. And then again, she's quoting from Isaiah when Isaiah said, uh, behold, I'm making uh, uh, all things new. No, Is it, uh, behold, I'm doing an old thing. I was doing a uh, quoting from another part of the Bible there. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Jesus entering in the world, which is a new thing. Yeah. And so when we say nothing new under the sun, again, that's, that's all with the understanding that if you don't acknowledge in, in, the, in the influence and the, the uh, interceding that God does. If it's not for the fact that, that God is interceding with the person of Jesus, and even ultimately at the, at the end, what I was, was quoting in Revelation, doing all, all things new, if, if it's not for that, if it's not for the intervention of God, the Father himself, yeah, there is nothing new. There's nothing new. It's all repetitive and redundant. And, you know, I have no answers for you. But in Jesus, I do have answers. Great observation. Yes, sir. Dave.
Yeah, and, and what David's talking about is the fact that he does read uh, read the book of, of Ecclesiastes in such a way that yeah, though he is in Christ, but he's still being encouraged along the way to to do things that uh, that do make a difference, that do make change. And again, I would submit to you that the only reason you have that impulse in you is because of, uh, of the influence of the Holy Spirit himself that tells you to do that. Uh, so for, for certain, yeah. And again, if for the Christian, like that's what I'm saying, the Christian doesn't read the book of Ecclesiastes and come away feeling sad. Although again, in the moment you think, gosh, this is really kind of a downer. But again, it's, it's, there's something inside of you that, that knows to object, that knows to say, I am made for more because I have, I have Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, almost certainly it's agreed upon that it's Solomon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, almost universally. And there's, there's some that would object and, and, uh, and say, well, we're not for certain. But again, the, the way he even identifies himself in terms of being ruler, ruler over all Jerusalem and that he had uh, everything, everything under the sun, you know, he had in terms of, of being a hedonist, <laughs> he was the expert, you know, he, 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 uh, he, he limited himself from nothing. And so at the end of all of that, uh, able to say, it, it didn't count for, it didn't mean anything. I had everything. I had it all. I had riches unknown. I had wisdom unknown. I had uh, 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 all the pleasures unknown and it's still, still meaningless. Someone else? All right. Yes, sir. Brent. In the beginning was the word. Yeah. First chapter of John. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, yeah. Brent's is saying he got a little bit lost when we started referring to the word as a person in the first chapter of John. Is that what you, is that? Yeah. Okay. The Logos, yeah? Yeah. The word word is chosen for Yeah. It has to be very abstract. The. He, I, th I think what John is trying to do is he's trying to answer an abstract question with something concrete. Because again, that was the, the question that the Greeks were raising, uh, the Greek philosophers at the time might, would, would have been raising. You know, what is the purpose? What is the, because when you think about, uh, we, we can get into the, uh, the, the, the construction of the word logos, okay? Uh, and it does, it's something, it means something more than just word, uh, but it has, it has to do with, with uh, uh, you know, all the philosophical implications behind what is in a word, okay? And so when, when John comes to answer it and he says that everything that you've been asking, all the questions you've been asking about purpose and meaning and what is, what is, what is the, the construction of, of the word, we have the answer in Jesus Christ. And so again, he's taking something abstract and putting literally flesh and bones onto uh, something that's, that's abstract. I know that's a lot, um, but, and I don't even know if that answers your question, uh, but glad to talk about it more if, uh, if you want to wrestle through that. I, can, I have some things that I can get you to read too, if you'd, if you'd want to uh, explore those. So, all right. Uh, with that, we've got about four minutes for those of you to get into the sanctuary that those of you are going. Um, but again, happy to talk through additionally, whether you have more questions about this or, or something else, glad to do that anytime you uh, feel so inclined, okay? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, once again, we thank you 
And thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it's uh, sometimes really complex, Father, but we also thank you that uh, you've not left us in the dark. You've not left us uh, just uh, grasping for, for things, but uh, you've given us something to hold on to, and not just something, uh, but someone in the person of Jesus Christ who lived and breathed and, and, uh, and gave himself for us so that we might be right with you. And thus, Father, we have significance in everything that we do and say, thank you for giving that to us and uh, help us to go out and share that with, uh, with our, our friends, our family, our, our coworkers, uh, uh, everyone that we come into contact with. Um, help us to, uh, to bring them into the light as you have brought us into the light. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you all.